Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girlbomb. Girlbomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self-care. So to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you, and treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, guys. Ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that. Let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. Lots to get to this morning. I am remote this morning dealing with a few family things, but lots of news to get into anyway. Um, so we have the big whistleblower testimony yesterday. We'll break all of that down for you. We have some key uh, video to show you, key sound bites from that. We also have some big updates in terms of the Ukraine war. Um, a Russian attack on Ukrainian grain. What does that mean for world grain prices? Quite significant there. We also have some political news. Uh, Trump doing a town hall with Sean Hannity and them actually getting a little bit cross wise in terms of mail-in balloting. Uh, so we'll break that down for you. Got a new poll out of New Hampshire that is also very interesting. Uh, Doug Burgum doing way better than <laughs> I ever would have imagined. Coming in at 6%, I didn't even expect him to really be on the map there. So we'll get to the, all of that. We also have a couple of studies that are really fascinating. One about the fact that the group of workers that is most committed to work from home is actually the boss class. So the higher you are in the income scale and the higher you are up in management, the more likely you're to be committed to work from home. So we'll talk to you about that. And we also have uh, some news about apparently the nation is becoming a nation of early risers. This seems yes. like some pandemic changes to all of our lifestyles and habits. You know, Sagar and I are both the early birds here. So <laughs> it seems like our team is winning, Sagar. 
Well, uh, one can only hope, Crystal. I'll save my well and barbarous thoughts for the late crowd uh, <laughs> for that discussion. All right, let's go ahead and we're going to start with this IRS testimony. There was absolutely stunning allegations made yesterday before the GOP Oversight Committee. One was an IRS whistleblower and another one was one we had not previously yet heard from. And this testimony is about an IRS actually investigator who was on the case of Hunter Biden for nearly five Five years and said that political interference kept him from bringing charges against Hunter Biden from executing search warrants and included multiple levels of political interference in this investigation. Here's what he had to say. Today, I, I, I sit here before you not as a hero or, or a victim, but as a whistleblower compelled to disclose the truth. That said, in coming forward, I believe I'm risking my career, my reputation, <laughs> and my casework outside of the investigation we are here to discuss. I ultimately made the decision to come forward after what I believe were multiple attempts at blowing the whistle in the Internal Revenue Service, at the Internal Revenue Service. No one should be above the law, regardless of your political affiliation. So, Crystal, that was IRS Special Agent Joseph Ziegler. It's the first time that we've actually heard from him in the public sphere. He has come forward with multiple allegations to the committee and uh, noteworthy, I mean, at least according to him, we don't know yet. He says right. uh, he's actually a Democrat. Uh, he actually didn't vote in the 2020 election. He said that he didn't think that he wanted to show even a, some semblance of bias because he was so deeply involved in the case. But personally, and I know we're about to get a little bit more into it, I did find him highly credible, even more so actually perhaps than the previous IRS whistleblowers because he was the actual special agent involved in the genuine audit and kept from performing routine decisions. Yeah, I mean, he's a career guy. He certainly doesn't come off as like a crank or a weirdo or a conspiracy theorist or whatever. Um, he at least at face value reads as credible as someone who was trying to do his job and was stymied. And listen, I mean, sometimes you have people who are attention seeking who just, you know, want to be in the spotlight and or they have an ideological agenda, et cetera. And it's always possible that this guy falls into this bucket. But he emphasized, and I think that this is relevant, that, you know, this is not an easy thing to do. This is really jeopardizing, sort of like turning his life upside down. This is definitely jeopardizing his career. There's just no doubt about that. He's become this sort of, you know, central figure in a partisan war. And so there's a lot of downside to coming forward as a whistleblower and, uh, you know, making some claims about the family of the president of the United States that are going to be very, very inconvenient for them. Yeah. Um, we'll get into it a little bit more, but, you know, I mean, one of the things that I was also sort of dismayed to see is because we care a lot about corruption, whether it's with Democrats, Republicans, or anybody in between. And, you know, the, the media, even with someone who comes across as so credible, there was, still continues to be uh, very little coverage, you know, very little in-depth analysis. They still sort of just dismiss this as a, a partisan game, which, you know, the Republicans are partisan. They are just looking for political points. There's no doubt about it. But that doesn't mean that there's no there there. Yeah, exactly. And that's why, and let's go ahead and play uh, this next part, because the specific allegations about the amount of money coming in from authoritarian regimes directly to the Biden family and then possibly being funneled to Joe Biden with no ability to really investigate that, that was really the biggest part of the revelation. Here's what Ziegler continued to have to say. Between 2014 and 2019, this brings the total amount of foreign income streams received to approximately $17 million, correct? That is correct. What was the purpose of analyzing money from foreign sources, and do you have documents to support your findings? 
so for the, the purpose of documenting the foreign sources is we, as a part of a normal international tax investigation, we have to figure out where the money's come coming from. You have to follow the money trail. So if for those who are, you know, didn't pick up the exact details, that's from 2014 to 2019 in five years, the Biden family received approximately $17 million from Romania, China, and multiple other foreign countries. The reason why I find this significant, Crystal, is that it is a confirmation actually of a 2020 Senate Intelligence Committee report that actually came out before the first presidential debate. And in that debate, actually, Biden was asked whether any of the allegations in that report were true, and he denied it. So this actually shows explicitly that there was proof inside of the IRS that many of these transactions, which were detailed then at the time, were both public knowledge in 2020, but really were private knowledge also in terms of 2014 and 2019, whenever this audit began. And then finally, the biggest uh, uh, allegation that was made by Ziegler was about the U.S. attorney of Delaware, who apparently was stymied by political interference and continued to make sure that the investigation wasn't allowed to proceed. Here was his allegation there. It appeared to me, based on what I experienced, that the U.S. attorney in Delaware in our investigation was constantly hamstrung, limited, and marginalized by DOJ officials, as well as other U.S. attorneys. I still think that a special counsel is necessary for this investigation. So that remains the core allegation, I think, within this, is not only what the IRS was saying, these whistleblowers about how they uncovered malfeasance and weren't allowed to do their jobs, but, Crystal, specifically that the U.S. attorney for Delaware politically interfered in the process to stop search warrants. One of the most noteworthy ones to me was uh, the note that they actually wanted to execute a a search warrant on the personal residence of the Bidens, but they were told uh, that it would be too politically incendiary. And I mean, throughout all of this, just the, the, the reek of special treatment is what comes through entirely. When with any normal citizen, it is so obvious that if they were ever to have this uh, rise to the level of an IRS special, special agent, they would not only have gone through a full audit in a timely manner, there would have been none of these you know, special treatments uh, that happened, and that this IRS whistleblower, Joseph Ziegler, wouldn't even know his name because he would be just continuing to do his job, and whoever did this would very likely be criminally charged. And instead, Hunter's gotten not only special treatment, but protection, and also has been allowed to you know, even pay, quote, $2 million or so in back taxes by taking a personal loan from a family donor. So it's just corrupt basically all the way up and down throughout the process. Yeah, the combination of wealth and political power leading to a result that, you know, is not remotely what your ordinary person would end up with. And, you know, part of what he testified to here, which again, you know, it's under oath, obviously he could be lying, but there's reason to take what he's saying seriously at the very least and um, be curious about some additional investigation. You know, he claims there was a memo that he was involved in preparing that uh, recommended much higher charges much more significant charges for Hunter Biden that didn't, you know, was ultimately not uh, pursued. Uh, And so there's a few things here that we're really getting at. You know, he was obviously directly involved in this Hunter Biden tax investigation. So first of all, was he charged in the way that a normal person would have been charged? That's question number one. Number two, if he wasn't, 
Is it because there was direct intervention uh, and pressure put from the Biden Justice Department? Now, it is worth saying that some of this investigation occurred under the uh, Trump presidency. So it doesn't all fall under Biden's jurisdiction, but that's the other big, big question is, you know, was the president at all directly involved in some sort of suppression, some sort of, um, you know, meddling in this investigation? And then there's, of course, the bleed over into Joe Biden himself and, you know, how he may have been implicated in these business deals or what uh, lies he may have told to the American public in order to, you know, clear his name, clear his son's name and uh, muddle this whole situation. So again, even though, you know, you've got to keep in mind, this is in a lot of ways a partisan affair. There's no doubt Republicans want to damage the president. They want to ding him up in terms of his reelection bid. That is all part and parcel of what's going on here. But, you know, there are some real genuine serious questions that I think are only further further and deepened by the credibility of uh, this witness in particular. Yeah, and you know, the uh, previous IRS whistleblower who we've been known to, Shapley, he actually, in my opinion, bolstered his credibility because one of the efforts by the House GOP has been to try and indict Merrick Garland. He actually said, quote, let me be clear, although these facts contradict the Attorney General's testimony and raise serious questions for you to investigate, I have never claimed evidence that Attorney General Garland knowingly lied to Congress. So he actually tried to undercut current impeachment efforts against Mm. Merrick Garland, which again, you know, whenever you see something like that, he's directly trying to stop some of the more capital P political efforts of the current investigation. He's trying to keep it directly focused on political interference in terms of prosecution uh, that was actually stymying and stopping the execution of search warrants, and then also political interference in terms of the actual IRS effort to see where did this money come from, were taxes not paid, and then eventually that came to a sweetheart settlement that Hunter ended up in with the government. There was, of course, uh, one moment that overshadowed, I think, many uh, others. Marjorie Taylor Greene doing the most Marjorie Taylor Greene thing possible at this hearing. Let's take a listen. For those who are watching, I recommend uh, that you pay attention right now. This is evidence uh, of of Hunter Biden making sex. Excuse me, this is my time. Making pornography. Should we be displaying this, Mr. Chairman? So that was blurred out there uh, by the uh, the cable news channels because it it literally showed uh, Hunter Biden, I guess some blurring on her part of engaging in a sex act. The reason why it was allegedly pertinent, Crystal, to the uh, proceedings was that they were actually paid, apparently, these prostitutes via the law firm and business expenses that Hunter was uh, engaging in. So that is actually remains one of the core allegations um, through the IRS is that many of these degenerate activities were actually funded directly by these businesses. And then the gall, you know, the the true gall here was not only the funding of it, but then using, in some cases, writing these off as entertainment expenses. But it does underscore your point uh, that clearly, you know, there's a big political element to all of this as well that we can't just put aside. I don't think they do themselves any favors. um, I agree with you, actually. Going in this direction. Because, listen, yes is, you know, the tax treatment of these activities relevant to the discussion. Okay, but do we really need the visual aid here? And there's no doubt about it. They try to use, you know, Hunter's addiction, um, Hunter's addiction to a variety of substances and sexual activities, apparently, 
as a political cudgel. And, you know, he is not the president of the United States. He's not on trial for whatever he does in his private life and whatever struggles with addiction he has had. So I think they would be better served in terms of if they want the media to treat this seriously, which the media should, regardless of their, you know, props and whatever sort of salacious details they want to focus on. But if they want to make a better, more serious case for themselves, I think they would leave some of the more tawdry details, images, videos, et cetera, to the side, which are not really at the core of the issues that we're talking about here as it relates to the president of the United States. Yeah. Uh, so that's the big takeaway, I think, from all of this. You're not going you know, to. And I also look, there's obviously a media angle to all of this. None of it was actually carried by CNN or MSNBC. In terms of my general perusal, uh, uh, there was only a write-up in terms of the mainstream media from CNN and from the New York Times. Both were buried very low uh, on their websites. CBS News, the only reason that they had fulsome coverage of it is because former Fox News reporter Catherine Herridge, who was a real star during Russiagate in terms of exposing a lot of the narratives that were out there, currently works over at CBS. So, you know, like you said, the kid gloves treatment from the media here is pretty stark uh, and in terms of how they're looking at it. When undeniably, I mean, this is a massive allegation. It bears genuine uh, investigation. So we'll continue to keep everybody updated as it happens. Let's go to the next part. Uh, this is actually a very important story also for the globe and for world food prices. The collapse that we had mentioned previously of the grain deal in the Black Sea between Russia and Ukraine, allowing Ukraine to actually export grain, has uh, come to an end, largely, I think, as a result of both bitterness um, in the conflict, but now really an ongoing Russian effort to try and crush the Ukrainian economy as much as it possibly can. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen because things have escalated actually a little bit since the collapse of that. They have now said and stru struck areas where Ukraine was previously exporting grain, as you can actually see in the image in front of you, a quote, considerable amount of current export infrastructure is now out of operation. Some 60,000 tons of grain and damaged storage infrastructure were attacked by Russian missiles. But the most significant actually thing to me, Crystal, let's put the next one up here on the screen. This is almost like World War I level efforts by the Germans. They are now saying that Russia ships that are bound for Ukraine to export grain, quote, will be considered hostile. So what they're saying is that they've they've withdrawn from the drill, deal. They are now striking infrastructure in terms of uh, Ukraine being allowed to export this uh, grain. And then they are now saying that any ships that are being bound for the Black Sea will, con will be considered hostile by the Russian military, effectively saying, we're going to sink you, you know, if you come in here. And just that announcement in particular has sent wheat prices across the globe skyrocketing. Quote, Chicago wheat futures rose by as much as 9% after the Russian statement. Their biggest upward percentage move since the war broke out in February of last year, and prices are remaining 8% higher on the day, heading into afternoon trading. And now the reason why that is so significant is that Ukrainian grain uh, does not affect really the United States or really even Europe, but a lot of it is the developing world um, to which relies upon a large portion of this grain. It was known often as the breadbasket of the Soviet Union whenever it was part of the Soviet Union. So this is a catastrophe for a number of reasons. Number one, 
Crystal, is that this obviously is terrible for the developing world that does buy a decent amount of Ukrainian grain. But second, I mean, if the Russians do follow through with this, what do you think brought, you know, the United States into World War One? It's the sinking of the Lusitania. I mean, when you start declaring, uh, you know, merchant and merchant and civilian ships hostile and then you actually follow through on that, things usually start to spiral real quick um, in terms of other powers getting involved in this war. So the Russians are, are absolutely playing with fire. And it is, you know, a bit, a bit of a desperate gamble also from them because now they're they're moving even more to the total war strategy of we have to crush the enemy's last remaining revenue lines that don't rely entirely upon the charity of the Western governments. Yeah, and I was talking to Yegor this morning. There are some domestic signs in Russia. They may be preparing for their second, second draft, second mobilization. So we'll keep an eye on that and see if that comes to fruition. But you know, calling this a catastrophe, I think that's the right word to put to it. It's a, certainly a disaster for Ukraine, for the Ukrainian economy. You know, this is you know all-out economic war being waged on them, um, which is going to be devastating, further devastating to them. Uh, it's incredibly devastating to the developing world, where obviously wheat prices have already been escalated because of uh, post-pandemic inflation. That has been exacerbated in a lot of ways by um, the climate crisis and drought, which has also impacted crops and driven up prices. So, um, you know, these are places that are already struggling with with hunger and with mass famine. Uh, this is going to be an incredibly devastating blow to a lot millions of people around the world. And then the other piece of this that I also think is really important to note is this was one of the only really successful pieces of diplomacy that has been achieved in the context of this war. And it was really important. I mean, this deal was struck early on. Um, it has been honored more or less consistently the entire time. And so it exposes the lie that it doesn't matter what the U.S. does, it doesn't matter what the Ukrainians do, that Russia isn't going to escalate. Um, and because this creates a, a much more dangerous set of circumstances and a much more dangerous situation for additional escalation, as you've been pointing out, Sagar. So I, I think this is really a big deal. It's hard to understate the uh, ramifications and the sort of ripple follow-on effects that could amount from just this particular collapse of this deal. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, once again, World War One has really been kind of my guiding, uh, you know, lo lodestar, I guess, if you will, in terms of analyzing this conflict. I think that's basically been vindicated considering the war of attrition that we've gone into, the fact that combined armed tactics haven't been really successful because neither side really has air superiority. And this also is basically exactly what happened in that war when the Germans found themselves in a situation where they were like, well, we can't win this thing directly on the battlefield through some sort of decisive movement. They are blockading us, kind of like we are in terms of our sanctions against Russia. So we have no choice but to try and cut the commercial supply lines to the Allied powers and to have indiscriminate U-boat bombings. Now, it didn't end up working out because it brought the United States then into the war. But when these types of desperate things begin to happen, it is not something that spells usually the conflict coming to an end, but actually an overall expansion. I also do want to take a second here to call out, you know, some of the uh, so-called NATO allies that we have, the great, the great powers uh, that have been begging the United States to get more involved in this conflict. It turns out when their own interests are on the line, they're going to choose themselves. Poland and Slovakia, along with five other Eastern EU nations, are actually, Crystal, banning Ukrainian grain exports because they are worried that it will crush their domestic farmers. 
Poland in wow. particular, which has been begging and trying to draw the U.S. more into this conflict more than anyone, whenever it comes to their own economy, is like, well, hold on a second. We can't be allowing this cheap Ukrainian grain to come in and crush our farmers. And actually, they are now petitioning the EU to ban Ukrainian grain exports all across the Eastern, uh, the Eastern EU border, precisely because they claim it will crush their domestic industry, it will hurt their farmers, and really what they're worried about is that will, quote, ascend far-right parties uh, to power. So their hypocrisy here is unbelievable. Like, they're, they want us to pay all of Ukraine's bills, but then when it comes to their own economic costs that they may suffer from buying allied grain, they, they've decided that it would hurt their domestic political Political situation. So I just couldn't, I couldn't let this story continue without noting that. It, it actually genuinely surprises me in the instance of Poland in particular, because I mean, they have genuinely borne the brunt of a lot of financial costs and hardships of, you know, being a neighbor to this conflict and the number of refugees that they've taken in um, from Ukraine. And, you know, the, so they, they have definitely uh, done quite a bit. They've also been very hawkish, though, with regard and very belligerent with regard to this conflict. So, uh, anyway, I am a little bit surprised by that. But, you know, people are looking out for their own interests, except for our country, apparently. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. I just think, I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but the risk of a broader conflagration has just escalated. The catastrophic fallout in terms of global hunger has just escalated. The catastrophic consequences for the Ukrainian people has just escalated. When are we going to think that it's a good time to try to get the parties to the table? Mm -hmm. When is it going to be the moment where U.S. politicians, Joe Biden in particular, decide like, okay, this is enough. Let's see what we can do to try to end this conflict. Because, look, I get it that there's a lot of injustice that whatever negotiated settlement could come out of this is going to be um, a bitter pill for everyone to be able to swallow. But the catastrophic costs of war and the risks of continuing to push forward just continue to mount day after day after day. And this is just the latest example of that. I agree. The, war, the biggest catastrophe that we could see is expansion of this war uh, into commercial shipping. That would just push things to a whole other level, of which we really, really do not want uh, to get there. Anyway, let's yeah. go to the politics section. All right, yeah. So uh, former President Trump sat down with his buddy Sean Hannity for a town hall and, you know, mostly softballs, as you would expect. But they did have a bit of a tense exchange around mail-in voting, mail-in ballots. Let's take a listen to a little bit of that. Will you encourage your voters, based on the system we have, to ha go along with the system of early voting and voting by mail? Because I, I, I think if you don't, you it's a big mistake. No, no, no. I will, but those ballots get lost also, Sean. You know, they send them in and all of a sudden they're gone. Those ballots get lost also. The answer is I will because you would like it. But you okay. know what? Can You're I be honest? For me. Okay. But a lot of, I got to take a break. But Sean. A lot of bad things happen to those ballots also. They're sent in early and all of a sudden, where are they? That was the fourth I mean, time that they sparred on that, Crystal. He's not gonna let it go. He is so, Donald Trump is the most stubborn man on the face of this earth. I love it. he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. But no, really, I won't do it because yeah. those ballots get stolen. And I guess you would like it, Sean, so maybe I'll do it. But no, those ballots are really bad. I mean, the reason I say he's so stubborn is the data is pretty clear. If he had just pushed for mail-in balloting during the pandemic and like encouraged his supporters that that was like the patriotic way to vote, 
he probably would be president of the United States. So personally, I'm glad that he is a fool and continues down this pathway and that there's this huge partisan divide that has opened up in terms of how people cast their ballots, which it actually used to be the exact opposite. It used to be Republicans who were more likely to vote early, vote, you know, by mail because they're tended to be older and that's was, you know, more common way for older people to vote. Now it's completely flipped. There's this huge partisan divide and they're just shooting themselves in the foot by not pursuing this. Yeah, this is uh, certainly something. And also you have seen other Republicans, even many who are skeptical of them. I've even seen my biggest interest is like former Stop the Steelers who are mm. now getting involved in this because yeah. their narrative is, uh, and I mean, it's wrong, but this is their, this is their idea, is we've lost because the left is so good at ballot harvesting. This is like almost like a Dinesh D'Souza type analysis of the election. They're like, because we're so bad at ballot harvesting. Ballot harvesting then though, is not gonna is not illegal. We can't outlaw it. There's nothing, or it is illegal, but you know, in terms of what they say, the real ballot harvesting initiatives, you you can't actually go against it. So we have to build the most robust ballot harvesting operation and actually win the election. A guy like uh, Scott Pressfield comes to mind. I've seen him talk about this. He's a quote, the persistence on Twitter, if you're not mm. familiar who I'm talking about. I've seen a number of uh, MAGA stop the steel figures actually use this line of argumentation, but there's only one who the boomers actually listen to. His name is Trump. And a yeah. lot of these people, they all came to the polls to vote in person on election day, specifically because they were told by Trump that they shouldn't vote by mail and that vote by mail is bad. And as we have you know, showed the data ad nauseum here, you know, Trump and Georgia in particular, if just the number of people who vote in the uh, Republican primary of 2020 by mail did so in the election, he wins the election. There, there's no question. Uh, Arizona as well, I fully believe he would have won the state of Arizona free and clear if he just embraced mm. mail-in voting because of so many of the uh, older voters. And then the, the, the other ones, I mean, it's one of those where the election was close enough of who the hell knows what actually would have happened. So he's doing nobody but himself. Uh, you know, it, like he's hurting nobody but himself but yeah. he doesn't care. That's what he believes. And for those who think they can nudge Trump in that direction, as Hannity, his you know most kiss-ass ally, thinks he can, <laughs> he's not going to listen. Yeah, and just so people understand a little bit of why this matters, you know, why it's such an advantage to really be pushing your supporters to vote early, it's because listen, a lot of things can happen on election day. You know, your life can go sideways at any moment. The kids need this, the, you know, dog gets sick. Like anything can happen on a single individual day. And so you want to, if you're a political campaign, bank as many votes as you can, as early as you can. So you've got them checked off. You don't have to worry about them. You don't have to continue sending them mailers. You don't have to continue calling them. You don't have to continue showing up their door. They're done. And then you can move on to this other universe of voters of like people who need more encouragement, who, you know, help them make their voting plan, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a tremendous advantage if you have a large percentage of your base showing up early. And uh, so, you know, and, and I do think even if Trump now enthusiastically embraced mail-in voting, I do think they did so much damage to the idea and the credibility of doing that during the pandemic and during the 2020 campaign that I still think there would be a bit of a hangover effect of people who just have it in their minds now, like this is not a way to vote. Your votes are not going to be counted if you vote this way. Um, but it would help a lot if the big guy 
was on board with the change of program. So I definitely think he is massively shooting himself in the foot here by, you know, being continuing to be clearly ambivalent about going in this direction. At the same time, you know, kind of an interesting poll coming out of New Hampshire. Let's put this up on the screen. I want to hear what you make of this saga. Mm-hmm. So we've got Trump at the top. Trump is down, though, five points in this poll from April. He's at 37 percent. Um, Ron DeSantis basically hanging steady at 23 percent. Um, then you have everybody else coming up a bit. You got Tim Scott jumping up six points. He's at eight percentage points. Um, the media is very invested in like a Tim Scott bump narrative right at the moment. You got Chris Christie coming in 6%. He's up five points from the last poll. This one, I don't even, I have no analysis of this. I have no idea where this came from. Doug Burgum notching 6%. uh, North Dakota governor that literally no one ever heard of and probably still hasn't heard of. I guess people just like the name 6%. Uh, Another one that uh, we we should talk more about either today or another time, but Vivek Ramaswamy I'm seeing consistently coming up in every poll. I just saw a national poll that had him coming up quite significantly as well, but he's at 5% here, Nikki Haley, 5%. Mike Pence, the other big loser in this poll, sinking all the way down to 1%. And maybe start with that, Zagar. I mean, this is the former vice president of the United States. This is a man who has been a huge figure in conservative politics for quite a long time, has really worked hard to galvanize that evangelical base. You're at 1%? Chris Christie's been, Doug Burgum? And Vivek Ramaswamy are beating you? I mean, how does that happen? It's humiliating. Uh, especially the, the, the Pence fall from grace here and the kind of catch up to reality has been, you know, one of the more satisfying elements of the campaign, I think, so far. Doug Burgum, I mean, he's spending a hell of a lot of money right now, you know, in terms of ads. So I actually think that probably can account for it. Remember, uh, Tom Steyer at several points was polling between five and like six percent simply because he was spending like hundred million dollars or so on advertising. So if you spend your way, you can usually get up to a decent amount. Now, I do think that the most noteworthy thing was the drop in that poll by five points of Donald Trump. But at the same time, he said 37 percent. He's maintaining such a significant lead. For DeSantis, he did pick up some, but he's not picking up all. And it does show also that all of these other candidates whose name are not DeSantis are directly a problem for him. They are drawing away from the anti-Trump support. He usually is going to be their number two choice. And so it does show that DeSantis really has a problem in terms of trying to get to even sort of a plurality because Trump does have so much support throughout the GOP base, and especially in New Hampshire. I mean, New Hampshire, oh, we should never forget, is the state that gave him his very first you know, primary victory of 2020, and it was a blowout, actually, at the time. That really is what put him on the map and on the road to true victory whenever it came to the 2016 primary. So I do think uh, that New Hampshire will be the big bellwether in the state. It's also why I think that guys like Burgum, Chris Christie, and others who don't have the same evangelical support base of Iowa are going to go all in on that state as well. Well, New Hampshire is interesting and is always kind of a wild card because um, independents can vote in the Republican primary, so you can pick which primary you want to vote in. And so it's not as much of just a hardcore, dedicated Republican base, whereas Iowa's the polar opposite. When you're talking about a caucus state, these are going to be your most diehard supporters because you don't just show up and cast the ballot or send in your ballot by a minute. You got to be there. You got to do a whole thing. Like it's a whole process, right? So you got to be committed to it if you're going to go and cast your ballot in Iowa. 
So New Hampshire gives more of an opening um, for, I think, a, a wider variety of candidates. That's why this is the state, certainly. Chris Christie feels he's going to do the best in because you have not just the hardcore Republican base, but you have independents who may be more inclined to hear his message, his very aggressively anti-Trump message, and take that seriously. Um, listen, if I was any of the candidates not named Donald Trump, I would like this poll because this is what they were hoping for, that Trump would be you know, in the 30s, 37%. And then you can imagine a scenario where it's like, all right, if I end up as the primary Trump alternative and everyone sort of coalesces around me, then I got a shot at this thing. A lot of the other polls we've been seeing, Trump is over 50%. And then it's, you know, it's really hard to see the pathway. So the problem for Ron DeSantis, obviously, is that he's also flat in this poll, that all these other contenders are taking peace out of his pie, not just down at Donald Trump's pie, but Again, I think that this is one of the more hopeful polls that the Trump alternatives have probably seen because it it kind of is a 2016 throwback. They could tell themselves like, oh, maybe this is kind of his ceiling here. And if we can just coalesce behind one alternative, we'll be able to get the job done. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what it looks like in New Hampshire. A uh, little more interesting than some of the other state polls or national polls that we've been seeing. And uh, the most shocking to me is the Doug Burgum at 6%. Did not see that one coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And by the way, really want to interview him. So we put yes, our request Doug. in. Please Dr. come on Burgum, the show. We will be we will be fair. You know, we ask policy questions, as anyone will tell you, but we will be fair. We want to hear your plan for the nation. We want to hear what people in New Hampshire are seeing in you. So please, please come on the show so we can give you, so we can talk to you. Yeah, I agree. So we mentioned Chris Christie there. He's making a big play in New Hampshire um, as former New Jersey governor. You know, he's kind of geographically close. And then also because of the presence and importance of independence in that primary, I think he's hopeful that his just really directly um, unvarnished anti-Trump takes will play well. And his political persona has always been that of like the fighter who's not afraid to get in there and mix it up and you know, have the debate, have the have the aggressive discussion, the contentious discussion, et cetera. So in that vein, he went on with uh, Eric Bowling over at Newsmax, and they had that contentious discussion. Uh, let's start with listening to a little bit of what he had to say about Donald Trump and January 6th. Take a listen. Chris Christie, do you think Donald Trump had an interest in inciting the overthrow of the American government that day? But quite frankly, I don't think he cared one way or the other, Eric. I think what he wanted was to stay in office. Um, and I don't think he cared one way or the other what was going to happen. In fact, if he really did care, he would have done what he said he was going to do. When he stood on the ellipse, he said, let's march up to the Capitol together and I'm going to go with you. Uh, he went nowhere near it, Eric. He didn't care what was going to happen up there. Uh, he sent people up there to put pressure, I believe, on Mike Pence and on members of Congress to stall the, the peaceful transition of power. And he said as much later on when he said that it's okay to suspend the Constitution. Um, you can't take an oath, Eric, to say you're going to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution and then say it's okay to suspend it. So I... Obviously, I respect Chris Christie for saying what he actually thinks on this. I think it's a lot less embarrassing than the way that every other Republican 100%. contender tries to, like, you know, like tiptoe around it and comes up with their talking points, whatever. I think there's a real audience for what Chris Christie is saying here. I just don't think that that audience exists in very large quantities within the Republican base. I mean, yeah. actually, in that way, reminds me a little bit of RFK Jr. Is there an audience for what he's saying, the issues he's leaning into? Yes. Is it a Democratic primary audience? 
Probably not. That's always a problem, you know, for especially anybody who's trying to hit more like centrist or heterodox or like untapped audiences is that the most tapped people on earth are the primary base. And it's because they're the ones who mostly have the power whenever it comes to voting and they select the nominees that we eventually get to choose from. It's part of the reason why the vast majority of people do feel disconnected from the political process, but it's a backwards loop because then the people who are actually invested in the political process are the people who don't want to hear reality really on left or on right. So that's, I think, uh, the big spiral for Chris Christie, especially whenever it comes to the specific anti-Trump message. We should always remember that for a lot of Republicans, they don't like what happened on January 6th, but they don't think it was the end of the world. And they don't particularly care all that much at this point, and they especially see it as mostly a Dem plot to try and hang Trump. Then also, you, on top of that, the personal affection that most of these people have for Trump, he is the most popular Republican since Ronald Reagan. I mean, there really isn't a Republican figure like him that is alive today, and that's why I think it's so difficult for people to wrap their heads around it. Mitt Romney was the nominee, but he, they, people never really liked him the way that they liked Trump. John McCain was the nominee, but as evidenced by people turning on him, they never really liked him the same way. George W. Bush is like a whole other league of his own. It's been decades, really, since we've had a leader like Trump who remains so re tremendously popular at a cop pop culture level almost with yeah. the conservative base that turning against him on an actual personal level is just a terrible political tactic. And I think it's telling that the guy who most aggressively defends him, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, most unapologetically defends him over all of his actions yep. is also the one that's like catching the most steam in the polls right now. Exactly. I don't think that's an accident. That kind of tells you who's still top dog within the Republican Party. And But I will say, you know, I was watching Ron DeSantis said something like mildly critical of Donald Trump. Like he should have done a little bit more, a little bit more quickly on that day. I mean, really like the most tepid criticism possible. And there was some online backlash from Trump people and his campaign is immediately walking, oh, they didn't give the full context. And of course, you know, of course we feel like President Trump is great and wonderful, et cetera. It's just embarrassing <laughs> the tap dance that some of these people feel that they have to do. Um, we wanted to show you a little bit more from that exchange with Chris Christie and uh, Eric Bowling because I do think Chris Christie has already qualified for the debate stage. You know, he's met the polling requirements and he's met the donor requirements. Him, Tim Scott, um, uh, Trump, DeSantis, and one other one. Not sure who it was, but okay. anyway, they've all met the polling requirements. So he will be on a debate stage. And I do think that the fact that Chris Christie will be up there is a big part of the reason why Donald Trump will decide, you know, that he doesn't want to be there because Chris Christie is skilled in this kind of give and take. He can potentially let in a blow. It does create some level of risk for Donald Trump. So anyway, let's take a listen to a little bit of the combat between him and Eric Bowling. What mo motivates Chris Christie to run for president? Is it to take out Donald Trump? Or Chris Christie is sort of fulfilling some sort of, I don't know, emotional void that you're looking for? Why, why, why are you running? All right. Well, Eric, are you a psychiatrist today? Uh, you know, if you're a psychiatrist, spend more time on the former president than you will on me. He's, if he gets on the stage, he's about to be uncrowned as the best debater in politics. And by the way, if he is, Eric, then he should get on that stage. Would you, would you be his vice president if he asked you? No. Fair enough. We'd have to leave I spoke to Mike Pence. The job doesn't. I, I spoke to Mike Pence. The job doesn't sound like it was too great. It's really sad to me that. Yeah, I know. It's funny. <laughs> it's really sad to me that neither of the top two candidates feels like they have to like 
be held accountable by the American people, that they don't have to debate, that they see it as their political interest not to take any sort of risk and not put themselves out there. And it really is pathetic on both sides. Oh, I mean, in terms of the debate, I wish Trump was going to show up, not only just for comic relief factor, but he should get pressed by not only just Chris Christie, but any of them. They should actually have to draw some sort of contrast. At the same time, because we don't have the ability to compel, politically, I do think he's making the right move. Even DeSantis at this point, you know, I mean, it's going to be tricky up there for him because all the governors and all these people who are thinking, why not me, are just going to aim all of their fire directly at him. I've also seen Vivek Ramaswamy take several shots at Ron DeSantis. Nikki Haley feels Mm. very comfortable kicking sideways whenever it's Ron and not Trump. So he's definitely, I think, going to take it on the chin while he's up there. And then, you know, speaking to some sort of empty podium or speaking about somebody who's just not present doesn't have the same level of actual criticism. And it almost does make them seem beneath Trump. You know, on the Biden front too, it's the same problem. If you have effectively coronations on a primary side, it's a terrible and really just, uh, it's a system which is obviously sclerotic and is dying whenever you don't actually have real competition within it. And then you just get to the point where most Americans fall in a trap of they really only have two choices whenever they go to the ballot box. That's just not how the system was supposed to work. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. All right, let's get some to some of the, the fun stuff here, some interesting studies that have come out that we wanted to, to parse through. So the first one, let's put this up on the screen, is we've been talking about the, the work from home revolution, the fact that there's been this huge shift towards hybrid work in particular. There's a new study, this is from McKinsey, so keep that in mind, but anyway, about who exactly prefers working from home and who actually prefers working in the office. They found that the biggest holdouts on the five-day office week are the bosses. Nearly half of the most senior employees are holding fast to their work-from-home days. And they talk here about how some of the senior executives, you know, they really see this as like a key. They've really incorporated this into their life. They are unwilling to change their habits. I frankly can't blame them if they've become accustomed to that. And they are even willing to give up additional pay in order to keep their work-from-home flexibility. Um, Let me give you some of the specific numbers here. They did a survey of 13,000 office workers in six different countries. So this isn't just U.S. specific. They found the largest share of employees who strongly prefer to work from home are those who earn more than 150K. That group said they were likely to quit their jobs if they were called back to the office every day, and they were willing to trade more than 20% of their compensation to work their preferred number of days at home. And it basically was the case that, you know, as you go further down the income level and as you go down the seniority level, uh, more junior employees were much more interested in being back in the office. And Sagar, I mean, there's a few things to say about this. The first thing that I'll say is that really is kind of logical because mm-hmm. if you're just starting out in your career, you're a young person, you want to be able to network, you want to be able to get to know people, you want to be able to establish yourself. Maybe you just came out of college and you're used to having this whole network of friends all around you all the time. You're more in the like social network building phase of your life. It does make sense that you would be more interested in being in the office where it's easier to engage in those type of activities. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, this confirms actually something that anecdotally I've been able to pick up. I knew a lot of people who were working from home well within 2022, not by choice. They were doing so because their bosses didn't want to go back and kept coming up with reasons like 
first it was Omicron. Then they can't, I forget what the next one after that one was, but they were like, oh, it's still not safe. And then it eventually turned out though that they didn't care about COVID because in their private lives, they were going to parties, they were traveling and all that. They were just using it as an excuse for not wanting to be compelled to get back in the car, to arrange daycare, to arrange drop off. And I just want to say, I totally understand and get that from their perspective, but I do think it was unfair because rather than telling the truth about the want for flexibility, they instead imposed a work from home regime on everyone. And what ended up happening is a lot of younger employees, especially people who had started their jobs remotely, really had a desire to get to know their coworkers. And I think there's two things, which is in an entry level job, there are two things. You are learning how to be an employee, number one, which Mm. humans are social creatures. Like you are learning office politics. You are learning like, is the boss prickly? Is he somebody can I approach about this? Or is he somebody I kind of have to go through normal channels or she? Uh, You know, I'm learning like, how exactly do we have problem solving? When the bosses uh, find a problem, who do they call in order to talk to? How do I get to know those people if I want to have some sort of advancement? And then second is socially. You know, you really are, I went through this certainly. You're 22 years old, graduate from college. Uh, it feels very disruptive. You have no idea really what's happening. And you start out with a bunch of other people who are your age and sometimes a little bit older. And so you both form like a cohort of people who you're starting out with. And then you also get to know people who are a little bit older than you. And they're like, yeah, that's what they say, but here's how it really works. And you're like, oh, okay. Like, hey, here's how I navigated this same situation. I can't emphasize how valuable that is to from really like the 22 to almost like 27 age. And for people I know, many whom started jobs remotely, they actually ran into problems that if they were in person, never would have been something. They violated Mm. like office culture. But how are they supposed to know? They they never understood Mm. office culture. They just got their stupid rule book and HR. So it's one of those where I have total sympathy. I also do want to say for everyone who's watching this, this is not an issue for anybody who works in a blue collar office. This is purely a white collar uh, phenomenon, which is why people spend so much time on that. So uh, as much sympathy as I do have for these people, uh, it is also a great problem to have because blue collar workers do not have to deal with any of what we're talking about. They're much more worried with uh, being scheduled at 6 a.m. and then also being scheduled at midnight, like the next Mm -hmm. day afterwards. Yes, true. Just to give you some more of the numbers to to back this up. So the highest income bracket that they tested was people who are earning more than 150K. Of them, a third, 33%, say they strongly prefer to work from home versus the office. For the lowest income bracket, they tested less than 50K. It was only 9%. So 33% for the highest income said, we really want to be at home. And only 9% for the lowest income bracket said the same. Um, For by seniority level, uh, at the senior level, 44% say they strongly prefer working from home. At the mid-level, 50% say they strongly prefer working from home. The junior level, only 6%. So this is really a big divide in terms of office culture preference. And, you know, I think like most people at this point, they haven't, they're not fully working from home. It's more of a hybrid system. They're in the office a couple of days a week. They're at home a couple of days a week or like week on, week off, whatever. That's mostly what things have moved towards. That's probably for a lot of people, a pretty decent balance and midpoint between the two preferences here. But the other thing it tells me, Sagar, we've covered a lot of what's going on in downtowns, especially in tech heavy downtowns, San Francisco, LA, 
um, the way that the downtown life has been completely upended and a lot of vitality just completely sucked down by the change in work habits. The fact that it's the boss class that is most committed to this tells you this is not going to change. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a great anywhere. point. So, I mean, so, you know, if it was the, the junior workers who were like, oh, I really want to be at home, then that might be more subject to change. They may be like, no, we want your butts back in seats at the office. But since it is the senior workers who are most committed to this, downtown's really, this is not changing. That's We're not going back to a pre-pandemic normal. This is the new reality of a hybrid office job worker uh, life where you're partly at home, partly in the office, and the ramifications for this for, for downtowns are just indescribably massive. The oh, yeah. um, And for across the whole ecosystem, I mean, it's, you know, all of the businesses that spring up around office culture life, the, the lunch spots and all the rest, um, the dry cleaners, like all the things that uh, locate close to the office to be convenient for workers, they are have already been hit really hard. It's not going to change. And cities have got to come up with another plan to you know, build out more housing, bring people, more people in for other parts of their life because the office piece, it ain't coming back. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, again, Washington, D.C. had one of the biggest, like a boom in terms of the downtown culture, our businesses, lunch spots, happy hour bars, all the things that kind of pop up in a normal downtown that have nothing to do actually with office space. Well, all of those are mostly dead. I mean, only the corporate chains are the ones that really survived, like the Starbuckses and uh, you know a few lunch spots. But many of the little-owned businesses that even I used to frequent, honestly, they're gone. And it's, it's very sad. Many of them were family-owned businesses um, that had been in the family for multiple generations. Uh, they were very proud of it. Some of the ones by the White House had some history even attached to them. And yeah, they're, mm -hmm. they're effectively empty now. I was actually just down there uh, the other day and I was walking around it was like one o'clock and I was like, I cannot believe that this is how empty it is. And you know, I personally have so many memories of meeting people in coffee shops or whatever, a whole portion of my entire early career in these places. And that's why even whenever I hear about hybrid work, they're like, yeah, we come in three days a week. That's still a 40% drop in overall foot traffic. And that's for po people who are coming in. So the metro system is not working as well. Uh, you know, the downtown is not functioning as well. And a lot of that actually functioned financially on people coming in, not only five days a week, but in a DC, like a true workaholic culture, like being around there for the vast majority of their day. And it's changed completely, like geographic, uh, like moving patterns, traffic patterns. Mm -hmm. Rush hour is now three o'clock. Apparently, like just I, I want to put the memo out there. Uh, apparently, that's that's how things work now. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on as a result of this. Yeah, well, that's a good transition to the next thing that we wanted to cover, which is that apparently America is becoming a nation of early birds, much like you and me, Sagar. Yes. Um, put this up on the screen. This was this was really interesting. So they talked to all these restaurant owners and you know people running Broadway shows and whatever. This is also from the Wall Street Journal. They say America is becoming a nation of early birds. Um, trendy new restaurants are closing their kitchens at 8 p.m. Movie theaters are swapping late night screenings for matinees. Hybrid and remote workers itching to leave the house as soon as they close their laptops are fueling the shift. Restaurants are now seating 10% of diners between 2 and 5 p.m. That's up from 5% in 2019. Dinner parties starting as early as 5 p.m. on Broadway. A third of shows now running on Broadway start in the 7 o'clock hour on Fridays. Um, that was unheard of, apparently, a few years ago. 
Um, you also have uh, just some, some of the hard data. Uber trips to restaurants in the 4 p.m. hour have increased nearly 10% since 2019. Rides to restaurants after 8 p.m. are down 9%. Um, you, they spoke with a, a woman who owns a dine-in cinema theater that recently ended late-night screenings. She says that her theater now does 75% of its business before the 8 p.m. show, which is now the latest offered. Previously, it was only 45%. So 75% of their business now before the 8 p.m. show, it used to be less than a majority. And she has a quote here. She says, before we would definitely have a sold out eight or nine o'clock show. Now we are lucky to fill 20 seats out of 100. Instead of the late night shows, they've added a 3 p.m. show, which she is shocked by how popular it is. And she suspects it's a lot of those work from home people who are like, you know, surreptitiously on their phone, on their iPhone, like sending a little email while they're watching whatever the latest movie is um, and sort of pretending like they're still doing their work while they are out enjoying themselves, which, you know, I'm not hating on them That's for that. Fine. Go do what you got to do. That is absolutely fine. But what'd you make of this saga? This is interesting oh, I, to me. I'm loving it. Um, and I can tell you this right now, but this is my personal favorite line. In New Orleans, notorious for late nights, concert promoters used to schedule main acts to start as late as 1 a.m., now a typical event starts at six and ends at 11. I'm like, oh, thank- am I the only guy who thinks uh, that concerts start obnoxiously late? There's yes. no reason that people need to be coming on stage at 10.30, okay? It's out of control. Blink-182, I'll do it for you. But everybody else, it ain't gonna happen. Um, and that, yeah, I mean, that, that's actually what I tweeted out at the time. I was like, listen, if, if a dinner starts at 7.30, I'm not going. Like, it's, it's just not gonna happen. Uh, I've luckily have at least reached the level of my career where I don't have to artificially stay up until like two in the morning uh, to schmooze with people who I don't even particularly like in the first place. But it seems that those people even, now even they are uh, making sure that they are not staying out as late anymore. So I do think this is a profound impact of work from home. Also though, you know, people know I'm like obsessed with my sleep data and this is largely yeah. post pandemic. There's a lot of data actually to show that people started sleeping a lot better and actually transitioned their hours during the pandemic, during lockdown in particular. People added, I believe, almost 30 to 45 minutes of sleep. And most importantly, they normalized their sleep schedules. One of the most pernicious things for sleep is something called social jet lag. And the idea is, you know, people like you and I who wake up ungodly early, uh, whenever we were waking up, let's say every day at 5 a.m., but then on weekends, you stay out until two or three in the morning, and then you mm -hmm. wake up at 11, it actually has a profound effect on your circadian clock because you're effectively always in transition. So one day, you know, you're on a 5 a.m. schedule, then you're at 11 a.m., and then you're back to 5 a.m. So you're always in transition. You're never gonna be perfectly well-rested. Going to bed and waking up at the same time every day or roughly around the same time is the best thing you can do, um, both only for your sleep and for your health, you know, which is profoundly set by circadian rhythm. So that's one. Uh, I'm getting a lot of this from uh, Matthew Walker, by the way, if anybody's interested. He's got a great book, and also he's been on several podcasts. But also, it gets to uh, some of the workaholism culture also that pervaded and also, the, you know, a grind set. Now, I don't think grind set is always bad, but I think it was profoundly bad whenever it was impacting people's sleep. I could definitely say this from a, you know, a career perspective. A lot of people did not actually have to be at the office until 7.30 or 8 o'clock. They just did it because it was part of the culture. And then they would go out afterwards 
again, to just prove to everybody how tough they were. They're like, yeah, I can party till 1 a.m. and then still be at the office at 6 a.m. the next day. That is mm -hmm. not sustainable for more than like a year or two. And even at that time was terrible for everyone's health. Like in terms of what they were doing, they were just yes. young enough that they weren't paying attention or noticing any of it. So I don't even really think that people are becoming early birds. I think this is what happens when you remove some of the stupid social expectations and you give people more flexibility for what they want to do. And you know, I can say personally, like I never wanted to eat dinner at nine or 10 o'clock. Like it was just one of those where you did it because that's what everybody else is doing. I will also say that in many party destinations, this does remain the same. So when people are truly off the clock, they do seem to be eating a lot later, like places I'm thinking mm. like Vegas, Miami, you know, dinners really don't start there until 9, 9.30. Uh, whereas like in New York, even New York City, which does have a notorious like late night culture, I think some of it does remain. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very interesting and you know, it's obviously much more beneficial to my schedule uh, that I'm like, yeah. hey, you know, can we go eat at 5.30, six o'clock? And pe yeah. people don't say no anymore. It makes me very happy that the yeah. whole world is now conforming to my own personal preferences. So it's yeah. a real win for us. I mean, I think I have personally always just sort of naturally inclined towards being a morning person. And then I was a swimmer, so I had to do the early morning, mm. you know, swim routine, even, you know, in college and whatever. So I think that made it even more ingrained for me. And then, you know, in our show schedule, we certainly are up very early. But I do feel like you're sort of part of this transition because Definitely. you used to be more of a night owl, more like burning the candle at both ends kind of a guy. And now you've adjusted your sleep schedule. And for me, just as I get older, I'm realizing more and more how, like, I cannot underestimate how important getting enough sleep is. And I certainly mm -hmm. see it in my kids as well. If they miss an hour or two, you know, can send the whole day sideways <laughs> without much problem. So it's interesting to me though, I mean, basically with the pandemic, we sort of reset everybody's whole work, life, social clocks, everything. And now we've sort of shaken the thing up and seen what habits are gonna stick and what things are gonna revert back to the mean. And I do think this goes hand in glove with the hybrid work discussion we were just having, which is, you know, if you're already at your place of work and you're starting a little bit earlier and then you're finishing a little bit earlier, then that just moves everything up a couple hours and that amounts to a huge, huge difference over time. A hundred percent. Yeah, you're right. I mean, anecdotal. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the reason why I used to be that way is just because I this was the was the DC culture. The DC culture, the culture was mm -hmm. it was work hard, it was play hard, it was late nights, and it was early mornings. And actually, I never really started waking up early till I started working at the White House as a, co a White House correspondent. And that was only because Trump would get his ass up at like four thirty in the morning and start sending crazy tweets. So if you're waking mm -hmm. up at seven, you're hours behind already the new schedule, but at the same time, the social structure did not adjust. So everyone, all of us who were covering it just got like four hours of sleep every night, which is terrible for you. Uh, and you begin to realize that, especially, I think really what it is is, and people who uh, have lost a lot of weight, like I have, um, you know, from the past, what you don't, you, you don't realize it until you're out of it. As in, you get mm. used to a very baseline level of like misery and like discontent. And you just think like, this is reality. And then you experience a new year reality. You're like, I can't even believe that I used to live that way. But when you did live that way, you had no other point of reference. So point of reference, I think is very important. That's another reason why I don't think that this is going to change, which is you can't force people to go back to that type of life uh, whenever they have tasted 
something else. It really is, it's, I mean, it's, it's so profound, as you're saying, the mental effects of getting a decent amount of sleep every night that you really are not gonna give that up and are even willing to sacrifice as many of these bosses we talked about previously. You know, $25,000, if you're making 150, you're talking about a marginal increase in your salary, but for possibly like a massive increase in your baseline level of misery. That's not a good trade, and I think they're correct, mm-hmm. uh, actually, to, ter- to turn that down. Yeah, I agree with that. So to tie it all together, I overall think that it is a very beneficial thing if Americans are becoming less like putting work at the very center of their lives and everything revolving around work and being able to make more choices and have more of a natural like rhythm to their days. I think that is potentially a very good thing. Hopefully. All right. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? A horrifying incident on an airplane at Las Vegas airport. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. So they were dealing with extreme heat temperatures there, uh, 111 degrees. And this plane was apparently sitting on the tarmac with limited or no AC. And passengers started fainting, falling out, some even apparently soiling themselves. At least five people wheeled off of this plane in stretchers, The pilot instructed passengers to, quote, hit your call button if you're having a medical emergency. Um, You also had flight attendants who fell ill during the four hours that this group was held on this hot idling plane. Let's take a listen to a little bit of what this sounded like for the passengers on the scene. All right, everyone, uh, just speaking, we certainly do, uh, again, uh, apologize for the situation of being very hot at the back there. This is the best that our uh, cooling is going to occur while... I mean, just absolutely horrible. There was actually a uh, Fox News producer who was on the flight who was talking about all the babies that were screaming and just what a horrific situation it was. Eventually, they got them off the plane and then they canceled the flight because they didn't have any crew that could work with because the crew themselves had fallen ill in these extreme temperatures. So no surprise that um, these type of extreme temperatures are horrible on your body, have huge impacts on people. And this comes, of course, as we've seen much of the country and actually much of the world suffering through extraordinarily high temperatures, things that we've never seen before. But there's new research that says it's not just our bodies that suffer with extreme temperatures. It actually really impacts our minds. Let's put this up on the screen from heat map. Um, The headline here is your mind might be overheating. They cite a few different studies here about the impact on mental health um, from extreme temperatures. One study looked at the correlation between heat waves and deaths by suicide and found monthly suicide rates rose more than 2% due to temperatures in the hottest months. Another study, this one was published just last year, looked at emergency room visits for mental health throughout the U.S. during the summer months between 2010 and 2019, they found a 5 to 10% increase in visits on the hottest days. There were a whole variety of conditions um, that were identified as part of that surge. They said the study didn't assess causes, but the authors did hypothesize one factor could be disruptions to sleep due to heat. That was something Sagar and I were actually just discussing the importance of sleep. They cite another paper which found an association between higher nighttime temperatures and self-reported nights of insufficient sleep. Heat can also trigger physiological responses that exacerbate mental health conditions, like the release of stress hormones that send your body into fight or flight mode. Um, In addition to the studies that they cite here, there's been a long-term well-known trend of violence um, and crime spiking 
uh, when temperatures rise, regardless of whether it's in the summer months or at any other time of year, there is a correlation between increase in temperatures and increase in violent crime. So clearly it uh, gets to people, it affects them in a lot of different ways. You know, it's interesting to me in that study as well, they talked to one therapist, and they were asking, you know, does this show up? And when you're talking to clients, when you're talking to patients, do they talk about the heat in terms of how it impacts them? And they said, well, the people who we mostly are able to see, you know, these are people who are well off enough to be paying for this type of therapy. So they have the luxury of having air conditioning, et cetera. Some of them talk about how the extreme temperatures keep them from being able to work out outside and that that's really key to their mental health. But what they pointed to is angst about climate change impacting people and impacting their mental health. Uh, and it reminded me actually of the charts that Sagar and I took a look at that show that uh, people who are liberal are more likely to have a lot of more negative feelings about themselves, a lot more negative feelings about the future. Some of that could be attributed to uh, concerns about the climate crisis. But this is increasingly becoming a really widespread concern, understandably so, given the fact that we all are basically suffering through some sort of extreme weather as we speak. Go ahead and put this up on the screen. This is the polling about how people are feeling about the climate. Uh, majority expecting significant negative effect from climate change. According to this new Quinnipiac poll, they found 55% of Americans expecting a significant negative effect. Two thirds of respondents saying they are concerned about climate change, including 42% saying they are very concerned, 25% saying they are somewhat concerned. So clearly this is hanging over a lot of people. But just to wrap things up here, I guess what I would say is, you know, it's very clear the way that these temperatures impact people directly. Um, the people who are most impacted are, you know, homeless people, people who work outside for a living and are putting their bodies through unbelievable stress in these extreme temperatures. There are a lot of follow-on effects here that we are just beginning to wrap our heads around. So make sure you're taking your care of yourself, body, mind, take care of each other because we all might be losing it a little bit as temperatures get more and more extreme. And so I thought it was fascinating to take a look at some of the, the follow-on effects that they see here. And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. All right, so what are we looking at? We spent a good chunk of the show on Monday breaking down the extraordinary interview that Disney CEO Bob Iger granted CNBC from the lush hills of Sun Valley, Idaho. The optics were terrible. The near-billionaire CEO bemoaning striking actors and writers for daring to ask their likeness not be digitally replicated or at the very least paid well for it. But beneath the comments on the strike was one of the most frank and bombshell comments by the top the TV business about the actual future of that medium in many years from executives. Take a listen. Let me ask you about it. Um, we're talking, I guess, ABC, the network, the, the stations, but then the cable networks as well. Yes, correct. FX, uh, Nat Geo. Is it possible you would look to sell them? We're going to be expensive. I think if you can, you can interpret what that word means. You know, we're just getting at that work, but we have to be open-minded and objective about the future of those businesses. Yes. Meaning that they're not core to Disney? That they may not be core to Disney, yeah. Now, there's clearly creativity and content that they create that is core to Disney, but the distribution model, the business model that forms the underpinning of that business and that has delivered great profits over the years is definitely broken. And we have to we and, and we have to call it like it is, and that's part of the transformative work we're doing. Right. Well, we've but, been having this conversation for a very long time. Well, I think what I'm in saying terms is of the erosion time. of the linear business, yeah. and now it's kind of closer to obsolescence. Well, I you know as I said when I came back, one of the things I discovered was that the disruptive forces that have been preying on that business for a while are greater than I thought, and so it, you it's it's eye opening. You know, it's, there's a um, 
there's a reality to it that we have to come to grips with, and we have to come to grips with that now. Uh, by, by, by the way, um, another business that is really has benefited from that business model is ESPN, but that we're looking at very differently. Uh, well, I want to get to ESPN, obviously, but I just to understand. So you don't know what you're going to do when it comes to these linear, linear businesses, but you would be open to ideas that would perhaps separate them or change the structure in some way? As well, I'll, let, I'll, I'll let you speculate. I'm not going to I'm not going to do any speculating now, except to say that we're very objective about their future as part of our asset base. That is very long corporate speak for saying ABC and Hulu are for sale and that linear TV itself is dead. For those who don't know the term, linear TV just means non-digital, available via satellite or cable TV as part of a network or the cable bundle. Think ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. What makes this such a bombshell comment, though, is that perhaps nobody on Earth is more responsible for making billions of dollars from linear TV than Bob Iger. Iger got his start at ABC before it was sold to Disney. He was number two and then number one for years at the Disney Corporation, as he milked tens of billions from live sports, ESPN, and ABC, and also entertainment hits on ABC Network like Lost. The Disney juggernaut was a juggernaut precisely because it dominated and had synergy of TV, movies, and in-person entertainment from Disney World. It used ownership of all of these three to leverage massive profits, which is why what he said is such a bombshell in the business world. As my friend Ben Thompson over at Stratechery explains, the mad dash to streaming, though decimated value of those channels directly, by extension destroyed the value of the integration that Disney built, the more the bundle subscribers became sports subscribers, the less Disney could leverage ESPN to drive up the value of its other channels, and the greedier sports leagues could become in extracting the full value of their rights. That is exactly correct. The people who pioneered leveraging traditional TV are now telling us, plain and simple, traditional TV is worthless. In fact, later on in the interview, Iger floated private equity as a potential buyer for traditional TV. When private equity gets their grubby hands on a network like ABC, we all know what that means. They are going to milk the last dollars from old people who still watch cable news and local TV. They will cut costs to the bone, and they will roll up local papers in the hopes of squeezing the last value from them. In fact, what Iger is really saying is linear TV, once one of the most profitable businesses in the history of the United States, is now basically like newspaper advertising after the invention of the internet and Craigslist. As we see now today, the Washington Post still exists, so does the New York Times. But how about your local paper, or even a regional one? If it does exist, it probably has a terrible paywall, and my guess, it hasn't been really relevant for a decade. That's the future. That's what it looks like for this business. What is also interesting is what Iger did say ESPN was still interested in. ESPN, not for the high cable fees that it used to be able to demand, but because it's really the only TV left out there with a semblance of an audience that still watches. Live sports, in fact, is basically the only thing that still compels a big live audience in America today. In 2022, sports events accounted for all but six of the top 10 most watched telecasts of the entire year. The only telecast in the top 20 that was not sports related was Joe Biden's State of the Union address. Sports is here to stay, and unlike in the old days, they really can't blackmail people into paying for the Food Network and for CNN or Fox if you also want sports, like they do in the cable bundle right now. This will have profound impacts on the future of mass entertainment in the U.S., especially on politics and news. As we've explained here before, CNN and Fox and MSNBC 
three network channels, they don't make any of their money from actual advertising. They make it really from cable subscription fees. Cable companies basically take a good portion of what you pay per month if you have the bundle, and they give it to them. Last year, it accounted for billions of dollars in profit for all three networks. But without sports, they're dead. Right now, over half of pay-for-TV households say live sports is the reason that they pay for it at all. That means it's really the only thing in the bundle that they wrote, rate as, quote, very important to pay for. Without it, like Amazon and YouTube and Apple, who are now going for football rights, things are going to fade away very quickly. How does it end? Basically, sports will survive as part of some new entertainment bundle. Maybe Disney Plus will combine with Hulu and ESPN to command a similar price point to the current cable bundle. Netflix and Apple, a few other companies will also survive. The rest will either die or they will have to get sold off to one of the three. As for news, you're basically looking at the type of future. Not breaking points per se, as much as I would like it to be, but the format, the business model that sustained these people for so long the rug is getting pulled right from under them. Now, just as already happened to the newspaper business, the Washington Post and the New York Times, as I said, they did survive. But think again, Buffalo, New York, or San Antonio, Omaha. Traditional TV is going to dramatically shrink in the next decade. The ocean of people who have added net negative value for our politics will soon be unemployed. And I guess that they should learn a different skill in the interim. I will let you guess what that skill should be. So I found those comments extraordinary, Chris. And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Okay, guys, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed the show. Uh, it may seem like we're cutting things short, but we're really not. There's going to be some big and fun interviews that people can uh, take a look at that will be coming soon. Some will release later today. Others will release over the weekend. Premium subscribers, keep an eye on your inbox um, for those interviews as they become available. We'll see you all later. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. This is where projects come to life. Our showrooms are designed to inspire with the latest products from top brands, curated in an inviting, hands-on environment, and a team of industry experts to support your project. We'll be there to make sure everything goes as planned, from product selection to delivery coordination. At Ferguson Bath, Kitchen, and Lighting Gallery, your project is our priority. Find great brands like Vosh at your local showroom or visit us online at ferguson.com build.